where you were planning whether you were going to be going to Bali or Byron was sort of seemed to dominate a lot of the conversations in mothers group and I and I found that quite um, unfulfilling and I thought there has to be something more that I can do whilst you know spending trying to spend a lot of time with my kids and trying to spend time with other mums in the same situation as me so it wasn't until my second child was born that I discovered volunteering and doing something practical to make a difference and and I was absolutely hooked it was it was this connection that I had been missing and I found it through volunteering. In the strategic plan that we were going to grow and get a warehouse and employ um, professional staff, if we decided to keep it as a community organisation, we'd still be helping a thousand kids a year and that would be amazing. But the fact that we professionalised it just led to a far, far greater impact, which means over the years, just so many, many more children have been helped, more babies have been helped, and, and so much gear has been saved from landfill. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Jess McPherson, a really warm welcome to Purposely Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. You are the founder of Blaze Your Trail. What is its mission and vision? Blaze Your Trail is a social enterprise um, with a purpose of helping people who are traditionally excluded from tech roles here in Australia, um, helping them get their first job in uh, the Salesforce ecosystem, which is a big focus for us, but just generally their first job in Australia. Uh, we do so by offering them practical work experience on volunteer projects with charities. And we've established just before we started recording that we're both Kiwis. Yes. Uh, and you've been away a long time. So you've been away 20 years. Um, we're I about have. to do, you grew up in the Wairarapa, which uh, I'm in Auckland. Yes. But yeah, how was that? <laughs> I had a pretty charmed childhood growing up on farms. Um, I had two uncles who were involved in the wine trade and I followed them into the wine trade myself um, and that's what brought me to Australia. So I came over and uh, at the, the, the turn of the century, um, arrived in Sydney just as the Olympics were about to start and uh, I was tasked with selling Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc to Australians and it was hard work. Was it? Um, what do they, what do oh they my drink? God. <laughs> so 20 years ago they drank Australian wines and they... Uh, Restaurateurs would say things to me like, "All New Zealand wine is shit." Yeah, <laughs> that would be yeah. The, that would be the opening gambit, and then yeah. they would reluctantly admit that our Malbec Sauvignon Blanc wasn't bad, but that we couldn't make red wine to save ourselves. So it was hard work getting a, getting that first Sauvignon Blanc listing on the wine list was a big coup. Getting the wine to be served by a glass, well, that was that was magical because as soon as Australian drinkers tried a nice chilled glass of Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc, they were hooked. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the rest of the world has, has been um, agreeing with them as well because, you know, New Zealand wine is um, – because I, I spent a long time in London and there's a lot of jokes about children being brought up on Sauvignon Blanc, um, <laughs> uh, Kiwi Sav, if you like. Um, yeah. And, and w what category of Kiwi are you? Are you one that stays quite connected to – Altura, or you pretty feel pretty Australian these days? Oh, 
look, it's a, you know, both, I guess, would be their answer. And 20 years is a long time to be out of the country. Uh, I did work for Marlborough Winemakers for a number of years, so I remained connected and that my colleagues were based in Marlborough and we spoke on the phone all the time. Uh, but uh, since starting up St Kilda Mums 12 years ago, um, I've really firmly been, um, you know, working for Australia, <laughs> Australian organisations and don't have that same connection. I've got four siblings and parents living uh, in Christchurch, the hut, Tikwiri and um, and Auckland, Waiheke. So, yeah, oh, yeah I've got family all over New Zealand, and and there's always, you know, when when COVID's not around, there's always it's always easy to pop across the Tasman for something. Yeah. Um, and at the moment, I'm looking forward to a family reunion uh, soon after Easter in the Wairarapa for my Beetham family, which is a huge family. I hope there'll be hundreds and hundreds of people at that family reunion. We'll, yeah. all be, we'll all be craving human connection and family and, and so relieved to see everyone, you know, yeah. well and happy. That's, that's, what I'm, yeah. that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I think we all are. And going back to you, you've referenced it there, talking about St Kilda mums, and mm. you had this high-flying corporate role um, and you found yourself in... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about high-flying corporate, you know, I was a sales and marketing executive, but yeah, okay, yes. Okay, yes. Yeah, okay. And you found yourself um, a mum to two young children in, in St Kilda in Melbourne and, and realising that actually, you well, just reflect on the fact you felt isolated, is that how, is sort of your moment? Yeah, I think um, realising that, that going to mother's group and talking about what shade you were going to you know, paint your house or where you were planning, whether you were going to be going to Bali or Byron, it was sort of seemed to dominate a lot of the conversations in mother's group. And I, and I found that quite um, unfulfilling. And I thought there has to be something more that I can do whilst, you know, spending, trying to spend a lot of time with my kids and trying to spend time with other mums in the same situation as me. So it wasn't until my second child was born that I discovered volunteering and doing something practical to make a difference, and, and I was absolutely hooked. It was, it was this connection that I had been missing, and I found it through volunteering. And empowering other mums that you saw isolated, so um, you, you could see the barriers, really quite practical barriers that stood in their way to kind of having a kind of connected life. Is that, is that how it worked? Well, it's kind of a little bit different in that it has a very strong green bent or recycling bent as well. Um, what happened was I had tried to take some of my baby gear to the local op shop and I'd been told that it was illegal to sell secondhand nursery goods like crabs and cots and bounces and things like that. And I thought, that can't be right. It can't be illegal to sell a secondhand pram in an op shop. Um, and what I discovered was that actually nursery products are heavily regulated and there are, in Victoria, there are fines for the supply of an unsafe cot, for example, under consumer law. So uh, there, there were all of these obstacles towards recycling, but I knew that there had to be a way that it could be done safely. Um, but the real eureka moment was volunteering to do a working bee at my local maternal child health clinic because a lot of parents had had the same idea as me that the best way to get the goods directly into the hands of the mums that really needed them 
was to do that through the nurses, through the midwives and hospitals, the nurses, um, the maternal child health nurses, which I think you call plunket nurses back home. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that are doing those regular check-ins. And, and I had taken some preemie nappies and some preemie clothing that my son no longer fitted to my local maternal child health nurse. And she said, why don't you just pop that in the photocopying room? And the, the photocopying room, you know, you couldn't see the photocopy. It was just bags and bags and bags of parents who'd had the same idea as me. But, of course, the nurses don't have time to sort it, you know, check that it's clean and sorted by size and gender and organised to give it out so I volunteered to get a working bee together and the nurses were so grateful because we whipped that room into shape and we got it all organised and we labelled things clearly so they could find them when they needed them and we turned what had been a dumping ground into a valuable resource and the the gratitude from the nurses was just so touching and we thought we're really good at this. I mean, we know this is our stuff, right? We know this stuff. We can do, we can do this stuff at home. We can, we can, um, you know, organise baby clothing uh, into into beautiful bundles that look like a gorgeous gift. Like that's something we can do really well, and 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 we can really make a difference because if if a family comes in and and the nurse can see that that mum's struggling to get what she needs for her baby, she can just go and grab something off the shelf and. And it's it's not um, if if it's beautifully packaged and presented well, it's not sloppy seconds. It's actually a really thoughtful gift, like you would, mm. you know, when your best friend has her first baby, and you might yeah. put a, a, a bundle of things together and take it over and present it. You know, it's a it's a connection. It's the it's the community. It's looking out for each other. Um, yeah. That was, that was the real beginnings there, was realising that we didn't want to be walking up into people in the street and saying, hey, you look like you could do with a helping hand. You know, here's some second-hand stuff. We didn't, we didn't want to be, we didn't want to be um, helping families directly. We wanted to be able to help them indirectly to preserve their dignity and, um, and to offer them a hand without them really knowing who, had, who was behind it. Mm. And so this is your evolving from a um into a sort of social entrepreneur like when did when did that sort of eureka moment or that you sort of dining out on the gratitude did you start to think about your career and who you were differently oh god not for not for years afterwards i mean it was a five years it was entirely volunteer run you know a community a community activity that you know was on the side of everything else that i did including working full-time and other businesses and um you know, it was a very, very slow burn to grow it from that seed of an idea to, you know, getting to the point that we could employ somebody to focus on it full time. And I was lucky enough to to be the inaugural CEO, but we dreamt for years when we were a volunteer committee of five, you know, with a few other volunteers helping us out. We dreamt for years about one day when we might be able to have a, you know, a lock-up garage <laughs> to put all the stock in or... Um, imagine what it would be like if we could actually work part-time or full-time on on growing the organization and it was a slow burn but what we found as soon as we started hiring people we had this massive increment in output and um, a, a, a stat that I often share with people is that when I was employed 2013 um, we were helping about a thousand families a year and now we help about 20,000 families a year. So the, the, um, the impact is 20-fold 
Amazing. But the cost of doing it has only increased by a factor of about six. Mm. So ironically, the more paid staff you have to manage a, a large volunteer team, the greater the impact, the greater the output. You know, so if we had stayed, if we'd never sort of written the strategic plan that we were going to grow and get a warehouse and employ um, professional staff, if we decided to keep it as a community organisation, we'd still be ha helping a thousand kids a year and that would be amazing. But the fact that we professionalised it just led to a far, far greater impact, which means over the years, just so many, many more children have been helped, more babies have been helped and, and so much gear has been saved from landfill. Yeah. And do you still come across people who whose lives are really positively impacted on the on their brush with you? To, Look, to you know, Melbourne's a Melbourne is a is a big city, and the last couple of years have been weird with COVID anyway. So you just don't see the same kind of people. But I did sit down in a cafe yesterday, next to a couple of girls who had babies and prams next to them, and. They were both saying, oh, yeah, I'm doing a drive out to St Kilda Mums this morning. I've got a whole heap of stuff to drop off. And I, that made me really proud you yeah. know, that, that they were our supporters, our donors. Twelve years ago when my baby was newborn and I started doing this, um, you know, they, they, were probably still in, <laughs> they were probably still in high school or university, right? And here they are and it's, it's just part of what they do. It's just, it's just normal that you think when your baby outgrows things, you know exactly where you're going to take them. And mm. I'm very proud of that. I have met over the years a number of families who we've supported. Um, I've, I've, I've learned about the challenges that they lived with and I've, I've learned about the, the difficulties that they face. And I think a big part of um, understanding that whilst giving a pram or a cot or a car seat or clothing or toys, books, whatever it is that you're giving to a family when they really need it, like that makes a big difference in that moment, right? Yeah. But as that as the child grows, um, if that if the family doesn't have, you know, a great job, if the mum can't get a flexible job that allows her to, you know, fit around the responsibilities of your kids, you know, it's very different when they're in early childcare. If you're lucky enough to get good day long childcare, you technically can go back to work full time. Your kids can be in childcare from eight till six every day. That's a thing. But by the time they start school, you know, it becomes even harder. And and it actually gets harder the older your kids get. Like my kids are now teenagers and they're both in high school. And the, the demands on my time as a parent for taking them to sport and and, and you know being involved in and then what happened what they do before and after school like it doesn't drop off mm. they're more independent for sure but you know for, for a lot of families two working parents working full-time puts an enormous amount of stress and pressure on the family particularly if there's you know three or four kids so yeah. what I really see what Blazy Trail is about is that technology is amazing because you could do most technology roles remote. You can work from home, you have good setup, PC, screens, good internet, <laughs> and you're good to go. And you and a lot of employers don't really care that you've changed your desk between nine and five. A lot of them are like, well, whatever it takes. You know, this is the project. Mm. This is what the work that's got to be done. We don't care if you get up at four a.m. or work until midnight each night. Just get the work done. And um, you know, here in Australia, women retire with half the super savings that men do. 
because of all of the time that we spend out of the workforce. Um, and, and single parent families. If you're a child growing up in a single parent family in Australia, twice as likely to be living in poverty. So for me, I, I got sick of seeing, because it wasn't just the mums that we were helping, it was actually our volunteers as well. Mm. I see so many volunteers who were doing low paid, casual, um, not particularly highly skilled work in retail, for example, because that job afforded them the flexibility that they needed to manage their family obligations. Well, if you've got yeah. three, if you've got three kids born, you know, two years apart, and you and, and you can't really go back into full time employment until you've got all of them into high school, you know, that's a that's a long time out of the workforce, mm. and you get left behind. Yeah. And a big part of Blazer Trail is also, um, you know, I understand that your working life before you had your family is those skills, those skills are transferable and they're valuable. And particularly in tech companies, people think that working for a tech company is all about coding and it's absolutely not. There's so many roles that are about business analysis and, and consultancy and working with clients and understanding business processes. So anyone who can turn their mind from the job that they might have worked as an admin assistant, might have worked in accounts payable or something like that in a previous life. But if they can if they can translate business processes for the technical guys <laughs> and the client and be the person in between, then they've got a wonderful career ahead of them. Yeah. And where did the relationship with Salesforce kick in? Started using Salesforce um, well, I got Salesforce for St Kilda Mums um, in 2013, but I had actually worked with it a couple of years prior in a sales role I'd been in, and I fell in love with it. Just just loved the idea of a customizable database. Um, working in the wine trade all those years, was it was really hard working with bad technology or non-existent technology. In fact, my first job out of university was the Montana Wines, and they didn't have a website in 1998. Can you believe it? I can't, no. <laughs> they didn't even have a website. And, um, uh, you know, I would have loved, well, selling wine is difficult, particularly if you're selling premium wine and you're selling it into a restaurant and the restaurateur says, I'll only stick your 1995 Pinot on my wine list if you can guarantee me a supply of four cases, right? And often I would be selling blind and have no idea what stock we had. And I certainly knew it would be impossible to allocate for them. But, yeah. you know, the, nowadays with technology, um, Salesforce has got an amazing product called Field Service Lightning, which which turns your your mobile phone into an inventory repository, a price book you can allocate. You know, it even mm. optimizes your route and tells you which customer to drive to next, that sort of stuff. So, I was and, I, I was born in the wrong generation. <laughs> <laughs> and did you go and lean on some people and say, "Hey, you guys are coming on this journey with me"? How do you mean? In terms of like them you know, joining with your um, Blaze Your Trail mission, like they... they oh, you mean Sal Salesforce as, a, as, a, as the, the company? As a partner, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, more, it's better than that, right? It's better than that. The CEO of Salesforce, ANZ, and ASEAN is Pip Marlowe, and she's a great girl from Palmerston North. <laughs> Hey, and, um, yeah, 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 absolutely. Because I, I went to high school in Paiatua, Tarawa College, Paiatua, call out. Shout out to all my friends down at, yeah. down at Paiatua. And um, so we grew up uh, a 40-minute drive from each other. 
and she's ended up being the CEO of Australia for Salesforce. So they've been a, they've been tremendously supportive of this um, this business that I've created. There's a talent shortage, a huge talent shortage. So the the part that that uh, Blazer Trail plays in the in the whole kind of family that is um, customers. Salesforce themselves and all their partners, because of course they rely heavily on a large number of um, implementation partners who actually help their customers be successful in using the product. So there's a, it's a it's a large we, it's called the ecosystem, right? So it's it's for every one job generated by Salesforce, there's another six to eight jobs generated in the ecosystem, and that's not even the end users. That's just partners and affiliates. So mm. it's pretty exciting. Um, world to work in and it is dominant you know the, the I think the biggest market share that Oracle ever got for database customer relationship management CRM databases was about five percent and now Salesforce is up at around 25 percent right, so yeah. it is a bit of a phenomenon mm. and my husband gives me a hard time about it he calls it the cult because <laughs> because <laughs> it you know it kind of sucks you in and then you um, find yourself wearing branded gear and getting excited about you know, swag, um, which you shouldn't really, because that kind of goes against <laughs> my green ethos. But um, yeah, it is exciting. It's exciting to see uh, people being really successful with their businesses. And it's exciting to see tiny charities being able to use Salesforce because they give it away for free to small charities. If you run a small charity anywhere in the world, you can apply for 10 free user licenses, which is worth $25,000 a year in mm. licensing. So um, that's that's where my consultancy is focused, is, is around helping charities get the most out of world-class technology. It's the same database that Telstra uses. You can have it in your charity. Yeah. On your mobile phone, and so as mm. just as we move towards wrapping up, but mm. what's your what's Jess McPherson's superpower? Like, where are you most useful? Oh, look, I think my superpower is probably um, just I never want to stop learning. You know, I'm always always keen to learn something new. So I listen to podcasts, I go to webinars, I read books. Uh, I love learning by doing. So all the volunteering that I do is a learning opportunity. I read about something and then I'll try it out, see if it works. I love doing that stuff. So, mm. yeah. And you, I, I, yeah, in preparation for our conversation, was um, struck by the Trailblazer um, label, which I think is a great statement about people, um, mm -hmm. that you can be a trailblazer and whatever you do, big, small, community, corporate, whatever, but... It's a great motivator to, and, and is that you try and live to that modicum? Like, I want to be a trailblazer? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I was, um, when I was 17, I did a student exchange. I went and lived in Italy for a year with AFS. You might have might have known some some mm. people have done student exchange. Yeah. And uh, there's, a, there's a saying, and I don't know, I don't know who came up with this saying, but it is, traveller, there are no paths. Paths are made by walking, you know, so... Uh, that that made a huge impression on me. That that idea that we can we can we don't need to wait for someone else to show us the way. We can just find the way ourselves. But I think what's even more important is if you find a way, turn around and 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 hold out a hand to somebody who's who might need a hand behind you. Yeah. Um. And that's that is 
very important to me to what I'm doing today um, and the, the the training of the job seekers because um, there are there are so many really smart people out there who are who are just excluded because of you know the fact that they haven't had their first job yet right and I know what that's like I know what it's like to graduate from university and be completely clueless um, I know what it's like to graduate from high school and and not know what your what your purpose what your calling is going to be the reality is we're all, we're going to have hundreds of different jobs and a whole lot of different sectors you know across our lives that's that's the wonderful thing about um, living in the world today is that you can go from one industry to another or one job to another you can always retrain and you're never too old to learn yeah. um, certainly in technology if you're in your 50s and you think you should be thinking about retirement well think again like the world needs you yeah. <laughs> smart people yeah. are needed smart people I, who can come up with solutions are always going to be needed I think you're right and I think that's where technology is most exciting I mean it is yeah. and it is one of your there's a guy on your on your video who's 50 and he talks you could just almost see the confidence coming back to him and he talks about even at 50 he can he can still learn new tricks um absolutely and, yeah and I I think that is a great message for people. Well, um, massive respect for what you're doing, and um, you. uh, good luck with the, with the future of uh, of Blaze Your Trail. And I'll stay firmly uh, watching what you're doing and and cheering from the sidelines. And um, let's hope we we get back to that New Zealand. Um, maybe a meet meet for a flat white in person would be wonderful. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I would love that. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.